I'm a, a native Arizona, a territorial family on my mom's side. Uh, we have history in Jerome, which is an old mining town here in Arizona, and Superior. <clears throat> and we also have uh, history in the Sumipo deck industry. Um, also, um, I have history also myself without my family of being in recovery for a number of decades now. And uh, I've done some speaking and done some classes and um, wrote a book called Emotional Detox, Redefining Self. And I'm transitioning from that to doing more healing work as opposed to being in the swimming pool deck industry. Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krause, licensed professional counselor. In today's podcast, I'm going to be speaking with David Fryho. This is part one of our conversation, and we're calling this one, The Healing Process Starts in the Discomfort, Dealing with the Emotional Detox of Trauma and Substances. In part one of our discussion, we're going to discuss David's path of healing through uncomfortable encounters with his own emotions and behaviors. David discusses his personal path toward emotional healing and recovering from self-hatred, while eventually changing his life and working to help others through a healing circle and honest conversations. This is a podcast you are not going to want to miss. David is quite an original thinker and a very authentic person, and it was my pleasure to talk with him as he inspired me. I think he will also inspire you. If you are enjoying this podcast, please share it with people you know. I'd surely appreciate it, and if possible, please give us a rating on iTunes. A little bit about what I'm up to. I have released my first video course for the parents of young adults, What Do We Do Now? The link will be in the show notes if you're interested. It's almost four hours of video of me talking about the challenges facing the parents of young adults. And if you're looking for EMDR consultation, send me an email. All right, let's get to the interview. And how long have you run this healing circle? The healing circle came from um, uh, another spiritual center, which was a men's group, and we all kind of disbanded from that. I had just gotten divorced, and I wanted my house to be a home of healing, so we brought the meeting here. It's been going on for about 18 years now, and uh, it's been hugely beneficial, mostly because we're not counseling with one another we're not trying to fix anybody we're the premise is that we're each individual healers and we're doing our own work and the other people in that group are supportive of that healing and um and it's been pretty successful for a number of years there's a core of us that have stuck around there's lots and lots of people that have come to it but it's not for everybody Right, and then you've also started it, having it on Zoom as well as in person? Yes, because of the pandemic, we went from, uh, you know, in my home to Zoom. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that works out in the future if we meet back here. It's been kind of nice not having people over here for a while. Right. Stuff, but uh, yeah. And okay. So. I think that's a good introduction. So I would love to ask some questions about, um, well, I think, you know, you put a lot of work into the book, so maybe we could work backwards, because the book's more recent, mm -hmm. but and maybe you could talk a little bit about the book and maybe what led up to writing the book. 
Okay. Well, um, I, I started in a treatment center. My wife convinced me that I needed to go into tr therapy and treatment, so I did. And what I discovered there is that this had very little, for me anyways, very little to do with addiction, but it had, uh, without me knowing at that particular time, which would have been 36 years ago, it turned out to be about uh, uh, adult children of trauma and how we negotiate our way to try to medicate or deal with those um, feelings coming from that, the survival techniques that we used. The biggest thing that kind of occurred one of the first few days I was there, and it's in the book, um, and I speak about it often, one of the people from the outside came in to do a meeting to the new people in the, in the treatment, which I was one, and he made a statement that I don't even know if he said it, but this is what I heard. You know, you're not the person that you were when you were using. You're not the person now that you're capable of being. And I had a very familiar electrical charge run through my entire body when I realized I had no idea who I was. And I used for 20 years to not remember what happened the first 13. And that's when things started. And I realized that it wasn't about using, <clears throat> it was about the family system. And that family system allowed me to, to associate with my so-called friends who are nothing more than extensions of my family system. <laughs> and uh, the only thing is I could fight back there you know, I couldn't at home. Um, and I realized that uh, um, I, I didn't know at the time why they didn't put me in psych because I was incredibly emotional and I cried every day and I cried every time I spoke and I spoke every time I had a chance to speak. So then for whatever reason, I started wondering if there is a physical detox, then why wouldn't there be an emotional detox? And I think that's what people misdiagnose is they're doing something wrong when really actually that's the healing process is the discomfort, you know. So then the other part of that was uh, when people would ask me, well, why do people relapse, you know, whatever the flavor is that they're using, um, the, the common thing is that they're afraid. And my, my thought was, well, what are they afraid of? Maybe letting go of the only identity they've ever had. And so that started the whole thing. And uh, all these horrible things that could have been horrible actually turned out to be good. You know, walking into treatment, getting divorced, um, even to the point of, uh, of the resolution I gained from my daughter's death, you know, which is about four years, four or five years ago. Um, and just recognizing uh, all those different aspects of... Uh, information out there that I'd pick up on and, and uh, kind of, you know, run with it without... Most of the people I hang out aren't really dogmatic and they're not very ritualistic and none of us fit in. Hmm. None of us right. fit in, you know. So um, now we do. And, uh, and so I'm... A lot of things that were very, very um, uncomfortable for me in a way of listening to and hearing um, one of them being I'm, I'm not against 12-step programs I think they're they're great to get yeah. started in but there, I was highly resistant to being powerless and what I recognized at that point is that I really wasn't powerless I learned how to give it away in order to be safe so not get hurt and it worked I got through it 
mm. but it plays shit with relationships, those survival techniques. And um, can I say shit? Oh, yeah, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. This is uh, for adults over 18. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> um, the, the, the ability to just to come through the trauma, and, and I don't believe anybody doesn't have trauma. It just depends on what levels they have and how they learn how to survive. And some people learn how to survive very productively here in the society, but it still, still plays shit with relationships. But the biggest relationship it plays shit with is with me. So I had, it was uh, because I was very emotional and at the 12-step meetings, uh, when I'd share, it pushed people away because it was overwhelming. You know, because some people weren't ready to feel yet, you know. And uh, so I found a, a treatment center out in Chandler, which is about 25, 28 miles away from my home. Started sharing out there, and it just developed into its own thing. It was a meeting that was supposed to be adult children of alcoholics. A guy asked me to go with him to, to the meeting. I was sitting there <clears throat> with him, looking at these people who were in treatment, and looking at him and looking back at them and wondering, would... If I, if I was out there, would I even understand what this guy was saying? Because it was so clinical and so dry and so linear. So at the he asked me if I wanted to do that meeting, which I was a little bit skeptical about doing because I didn't know. I thought I was stupid, but I'm dyslexic. Hmm. And I didn't know that. And so I don't do reading well and stuff. But little by little, all the 12 step stuff went away and it became its own meeting where we did ceremony there. And I didn't know what ceremony was. Right. <laughs> we started with music and ended with music. And uh, they actually, after a while, started the, I was out there on Thursday night. On Friday mornings, they'd open up for people in the treatment center to go get assistance if they got uh, triggered. Oh, wow. You know, because it, it's, it, what I talk about isn't warm and fuzzy. You know, it's it's pretty deep. And I didn't know that. I didn't know I was deep. I thought it was just full of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I am that too. Right. But uh, so that's that's kind of where everything started. And then it just kind of developed around that. And as much credit as people might want to give me for the reduction or the elimination of uh, drugs and alcohol, that's not where I'm shining. Shining is the recovery from depression. Yes. And I believe in all my heart that I was born clinically depressed. I've been 40 years. I was born 40 years old. Wow. You know, so I don't know how to be. I know how to be. I, I used to be childish. I'm trying to learn how to be childlike now. And it's been a work. Yeah, you know? I was going to say depression is a real difficult disease. And people don't realize that they're in and out of it. And... And if you're always in it, you don't know what it's like to be out of it. But alcohol and drugs can make us lift out of it temporarily. Right. But then they usually dive us, drive us back deeper when they wear off. Exactly. Plus the component that with that was <clears throat> um, with the self-identification of, of those. How can I say this? <clears throat> the hardest part is to let go of the identity that I created through the depression, because I didn't know I was depressed. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't even know I was potentially alcoholic or a drug addict. You know, that's just what we did. I knew it was bad because it was illegal. Right. You know, but other than that, um, and, and alcohol has never been my friend or drugs. And, you know, I, I, I took drugs in order to drink more. 
Right. You know, um, and I, I will, I refuse to even attempt to think about drinking again. Right. You know, because it'd just be a chicken shit way of committing suicide. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it's that self-identification part that's powerful and the emotional attachment to that identity. So my premise has been, um, I'm not a clinician, but if a client came in and says, I feel like shit, I'd say, great, it's working. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, know, that's part of um, not every type of counseling or psychology, but a lot of the deeper forms of it, and even including not just psychoanalysis and uh, that sort of stuff, but I mean, uh, the deeper healing stuff such as internal family systems, EMDR, somatic experiencing therapy, ego state therapy, uh, a lot of that is what it's getting into is assisting you with going through the dark tunnel. And if you don't go through the dark tunnel, you get stuck in the dark tunnel, Mm -hmm. and you can't turn around, and you're just stuck there. And if you don't go into the dark tunnel, you're constantly anxious or depressed for other reasons because you're not facing the darkness. But if you go all the way through it, it hurts. Right. And you have to make some real... um, Realizations of, and each one of us has our own realizations to make. Uh, but that's where the therapist assists, and or a healing circle, or a, or a group therapy, or whatever assists you from with going through it. But here's the deal: they can only assist. Right. If you fake it and you say, "Oh, I'm going through the dark tunnel. I'm I'm doing it," right. and you don't do it, you're not you know you're not getting the other side. And then here's the other part: <laughs> I think every time we go through the dark tunnel, we come on the other side. We have we have this momentary nirvana right and we and things go better don't get me wrong the nirvana wears off because that's mm-hmm. temporary but we you know things go better in our in our patterns but then we find a new problem with our pattern yeah and that's that's mm-hmm. the what they maybe call the shadow work is right. that you always have something that's out of your view and um yeah i just remember back when i was in college i was journaling and a little bit here and there and i i remember writing in the journal i can't believe i thought that way six months ago mm-hmm. that was ridiculous mm-hmm. right right and then and then like a year later i can't believe i thought that way a year ago i can't even <laughs> and then six months before that was even worse you know and i remember writing stuff like that and then i was like when is it ever going to get to the point where i just you know listen i say what i mean and i mean what I say and I am congruent and then I I finally went to therapy when I was 24 Mm -hmm. probably should have gone when I was uh, 20 years younger anyway but I went there and and then the the therapist sort of guided me to the solution without telling me which is that's you're never going to get there right if if you decide that you want to stop somewhere and and become you know uh you want to stop somewhere and you just want to kind of plant your feet you can do that but then there's going to be a lot of other problems that come along with that but you mm-hmm. if you stop learning about yourself and the yeah. world you're going to get bitter you know for some people they they look backwards and if you look backwards all the time um you know there's that metaphor of of looking back to you know uh, go biblical for a second because i see the bible as metaphor Mm -hmm. uh the lot's wife looks back at where she left her home and uh she turns into a pillar of salt it's bitter it's difficult but she kept she was frozen right right Mm -hmm. 
and and, and we're frozen looking back, mm-hmm. but yet we have to look back. It's just that we can't keep looking back. Right. I think there's a premise that I come come for myself, and all of this is for me. I'm not suggesting right. anybody do anything. I, I'm you know I'm sure. not. Um, <clears throat> is talking about it or talking through it? Mm. And I think there are two huge components because talking what you just described. Um, talking about it, you just keep recreating the same crap over and over and over again, you know. But talking through it, there's a there's a there's some a little bit more resolution towards that. Till the resolution, cre- the process of resolution starts to create momentum, and then the, those triggers or those aspects don't don't affect us as much or at all. The other part of that is um, the remedy that a lot of people and I've been clean thirty six years, I think it is. And 20 of those years, I was suicidal. Mm. And I don't remember being suicidal while I was using, but I remember being suicidal before I started using Mm -hmm. and became suicidal afterwards. And I was very, very, uh, I had a very negative aspect of people that committed suicide, mostly because of what I was watching, is that they were taking their unresolved issues and dissipating them to people who, we're now taking on their unresolved issues plus the ones they had, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I always kind of considered it kind of a chicken shit way of going, but then I realized, uh, due to the um, emotional detox part and the self-identification, if I had killed myself any time before you and I are t- making this conversation, I would have been murdering the wrong identity. Mm, yeah, that to me was incredible to realize because right. I'm not the certain person I was five years ago or 10 years. I couldn't, I couldn't have this level of conversation with you without emotionally breaking out or breaking down or mm-hmm. crying or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I was wondering why they didn't put me in psych and, and treatment, you know? Um, but they didn't. And so I, I worked through it on my own and, um, and back to what you were saying, uh, my smart-ass way of reflecting on this is that somebody can hit a certain level of recovery by themselves. I think it's limited, and I also know that for most of those, like myself, my feedback really sucked. Right. It wasn't healthy feedback. It was very, and it was feedback that I had learned from somebody else from my family system. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the first words I looked up in the dictionary was sarcasm. And I realized I thought we were funny, but right. we were, and and one of the de- parts of the definition of sarcasm is ripping of the flesh like a dog. Hmm. So we would get in and just rip the shit out of each other, and the one with the most meat on his bones that left was the winner, you know. And then the next word a word I looked up was addict, giving oneself up to a powerful habit, or being or becoming habitual. So it wasn't what I did, it's who I was. And I gave myself away, the, 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 I gave my self, the small letter S, self away. And as I've regained that back, myself, now it's the capital word, the bigger self, the big cosmic spiritual self. Right. That's what I'm connecting with more and more. Um, so it's it's interesting to um, to have come up with these concepts for myself and how they seem to connect for a lot of people. Not everybody, that's for sure, but for a lot of people. And um, 
it's not warm and fuzzy when I get done because they think when I was doing trainings at uh, one of the healthcare authorities here, uh, we talked about our friend Randy, got to be involved with that. And the lady that ran the, um, the program came in and listened to me for a while. And when she walked by Randy, after she left early and she walked by Randy, she said, I, I didn't think this was going to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my ability to go to a 12-step meeting and emote and have this supposed um, uh, energy of people supporting you was bullshit because I was triggering the shit out of them. And I didn't know that, you know. So what I realized is that was actually my gift. But it didn't feel like that. It felt like exclusion because that's what I was familiar with in my past. So what some of those things that were seemed to be liabilities actually weren't. My emotions, I had a therapist tell me when I was frustrated with how much emotional pain I was in. She said, David, you didn't stop feeling. Said, oh, wow. That sucks. Right. <laughs> you know? So, um, and, and, and another part of me is, uh, we had talked earlier about, um, not fitting in, you know, and I tried to fit in and, and it almost killed me to fit into the, uh, environments that I was involved with, you know, uh, the house that I own now, I bought from my, uh, one of my high school, uh, grade school and high school, uh, buddies, acquaintances, I used to call him a friend. Right. And his dad was a real cowboy. For real, you know, and uh, we go hunting, and I'd come back with a country drawl, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So I I would chameleon my way through different environments, which which was really good because it probably saved my life in a lot of situations. So I kind of got along with every all the little cliques in high school, and I didn't get along with all of them at the same time. So I learned how to negotiate. That was a survival technique. It worked really well. Other survival techniques did not work well. You know, raging did not work well. It helped, it protected me from that environment that I was in, but it plays shit for having a marriage. You know, and so I'm that, and I'm still working on that. You know, um, I I'm I'm still working on that part. Yeah, they say that uh, the things that kept us safe as a child can become constricting in adulthood and in relationships. It just depends which one it is, right? Because all of them were developed for the right reason. Right. The, the issue is now is it how 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 do you br you know talk about how do you break the habit that you've been doing your whole life if it protected and saved you your your mind and your nervous system and your whole soul right. say yeah you need that you need that don't give that up right and that's part of your identity too exactly I and think, then yeah. all of a sudden you know you're going nope can't do that anymore. I gotta, I gotta let that go. It, it's painful because it's like, feels like you're losing part of yourself, but you're actually not. You're, you're honoring a part of yourself by putting it where it belongs, which is in the past. Well, that that whole concept for me is about. Um, I, I, I came into this world with a very myopic, very narrow perception of view of the world and life, and 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 as I've continued on on my healing work. I've realized that I've broadened that perspective. I've, I've supervisioned my life, you know, mm -hmm. so I can see things differently. That sounds all warm and fuzzy, but, you know, and, and that some of the things that I perceived were supposed to sound warm, be, feel, experience as warm and fuzzy. I thought forgiveness was really cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
it was a lot of work for me. And resolution, God damn, you know, I, I couldn't believe how much work it was to let go and become more resolved. The end result after it builds up is good, but Jesus, getting to that point was bone crushing, you know, and uh, and how many people take themselves out before they hit that, you know. Oh, I would say that is one of the main drivers of suicide besides depression would be unresolved relationship issues. Yeah, especially with self. Uh, with the self and others. And, um, and, there's know, something unresolved, or you see it in the family system. There's something unresolved in the family system oftentimes. I mean, suicide's got so many, you know, con- you know, specifics to each person, but I see this a lot is that... Uh, somebody in the family is crying out for help Mm -hmm. you know they're acting out quote unquote you know breaking the norms drinking alcohol drugs or cursing at the parents or whatever it is and and nobody takes it seriously Mm -hmm. or they kiss try to punish the person until they stop and then they and then if they don't get help and then or they don't move away i mean moving away can help you know getting away from Mm -hmm. the environment then if they don't ever get any of that uh, suicide can result for sure. Yeah. Um, I've seen that too many times, um, you know, as being a clinician and running it, you know, sometimes working with the family members right. of, of somebody who committed suicide. Uh, I should say died by suicide is actually a better way of saying it. Yeah, I agree. Saying I agree. It. Committed, um, yeah. It's just uh, there's cultural programming in my upbringing as well. So that's how I've always heard it said, but it's actually died by suicide. So, you know, the 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 crazy part about suicide is that what uh you know you said you you were depressed for all these years so in that sense there's the clinical sense where suicide is just part of the part of the depression suicidality is part of the depression and then there's a person who only is in temporary depression where you had the full blown long term but in the temporary depression oftentimes the suicide is a symbol that this part of your life has to die or this identity has to die right that's a shorter term fix Mm -hmm. where suicide is a long-term fix supposedly well well, right you don't know you're not around for it but it it seems like a long-term fix too right but but, uh so chronic suicidality is more difficult because um it's part of the symptom picture of depression and then that mixes with the identity and mixes with reality what you you can't see the flowers outside your window like somebody who doesn't have that long-term depression right, right. now the ang- the anxious person might not see them because they're just looking around for threats and maybe some some bees that might sting them right, right? Yeah. but you know the depression is like wearing um, a pair of glasses that fog things up mm-hmm. you can't it's hard to appreciate right yeah exactly yeah, so it's 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 been interesting. It's also um, recognizing when I went into treatment, I got out. There was a, a a club where people met and they had meetings there all the time and dances and all that kind of stuff. And they had a books bookstore uh, there. And I went and bought. This is thirty five years ago. I bought seventy five dollars worth of books about adult children, and uh, I couldn't even read them. Hmm. You know, the second I started reading the book, it 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 screwed me up, or I was emoting. You know, it was connecting, yeah. and I didn't know what it was connecting to. And and in my past using life, my unresolved issues were coming to the surface, and I didn't know what they were. 
So I was working for a guy in the swimming pool deck industry, and I was working for a guy who was a writer, and he wrote books uh, at the time where everything is in the light, you know, embraced by the light and hugged by the light and oh, turn right. off the light or whatever. All right. Know? And um, and he had a book there, and and it was in French, and I and it said LSD, and I asked him what what's that about, and this doctor and the late 50s i believe was helping addicts and alcoholics with lsd and i and i'm not a clinician man i'm a cool dead guy uh, i'm a i'm uh, i don't even know why i know what i know you know and it's not important to have to figure it out but i said i know how i know how that happened whoever who's guiding them helped them get through their resolution to their issues but if you don't know you even have issues and those come to the surface that's crazy. I'm the guy that you would read about jumping through a plate glass window or drifting off a bridge on LSD. And they blame it on the LSD, naturally. And then blame it on me for being an idiot for taking the <laughs> LSD. <laughs> but what I realized, it brought up it brought up my history. And this was when I was in treatment that I recognized that. You know? Holy shit. I, I couldn't sleep in my room for months. I quit sports, thank God. You know, because most of I'm I'm... I was at my 30-year reunion, and some guy walked up to me and said, oh, I remember you. And I said, well, shit, I was only one of eight minorities in the whole damn school. Why would you right. not remember me? You know? <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's, it's the whole thing about cause and effect. It's clean. It, there's no judgment on it. You know, um, I, I started to understand the cause, and then I started to get resolution with the effects. I didn't know that's what I was doing. That's just what I did, you know. Um, and by sharing this with other people, it affected them. And a lot of times it affected them in a very uncomfortable way. Well, honesty is uncomfortable. Apparently. Well, I mean, uh, we, uh, we live in, uh, this is my opinion, so... You know, you can send an email, but this is just my opinion. I, I think we live in a very dishonest society. Absolutely. I and believe I, that. Everything, everything is, I almost feel like it's becoming more dishonest. Uh, I don't know if that's actually true, but in some ways, like sales and marketing and, hey. uh, you know, certain health trends. And it, it takes a lot of critical thinking and, and uh, investigation to find out what's, what's real. You know what's what really works and what the catch is and and so if you and then you know to get along in in business world like you were in the pool deck industry and in different industries you have to you have to learn the speak of that industry you have to learn the language mm -hmm. um, but the same goes socially right if you hang out at this biker bar over here down from your house they have a different language than if you go to that indie rock punk club and they have a different language than if you go to the oyster bar. Mm -hmm. And they all have different, you know, different languages. And if you go to this church over here, I don't know what kind of church it is, but they've got their own little language. Exactly. So to survive, we have to adapt to our circumstances and what kind of culture we find ourselves in. And 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 oftentimes there's people in those cultures that can, uh, what is that called? They kind of can break it down. They can kind of uh, deconstruct it, and they're the people that are kind of interesting. You know, mm -hmm. but then if you if you walk into that culture, it's hard to tell what's true and what's false. Yeah, if it's, it, especially in, if you're immersed in it. Right, you know? any environment, right? And so, 
uh, and I think which we, you just defined as the family system, right? It, which is the family system, right? Mm-hmm. And exactly. And so, especially if you're in a group of friends, it's really hard to find out where the truth is and mm-hmm. where it begins. Especially if none of you are doing self work, mm-hmm. which I've been in those group of friends before, where everything's, uh, you know, it, it is a replication of some sort of dis- dysfunctional family. Yeah. And uh, well, in my group of friends, alcohol was the uh, antidote to our problems and <laughs> the magic cure and. I got, I grew very tired of it because, you know, after a few, uh, not a few, but after many bad episodes, <laughs> I had to kind of distance myself from those friends. But, who, uh, but who's keeping count? Right. I don't even know. I mean, <laughs> it could have been more. I, it could have been less. Who knows, right? Because you would always, that was, that was the fix. Well, what marketing is interesting to me because basically they're, they're searching for people with low self-esteem. Correct. Yeah. You know, that's who their market is. You know, yeah. if you do this medication, you're going to look like Britney Spears or whoever, you know, sure. whoever. Or if you drink this, you're going to be more of a man. Yeah. You know, if you drive this kind of truck, you know. Smoke these cigarettes, you look like the Marlboro guy. Well, you're not, you're, right. you're not like the Marlboro guy. You are. You are the Marlboro guy. Yeah. You're self-identified with the things that you do, you know. It, it's so, yeah, I'm, I, the marketing thing is weird. You know, it's funny. I want to, I, I want to. I might tell a weird story, but the point that I'm trying to get to is that you're honest and it makes people uncomfortable. So I'm going to wrap back around to that. But I I, uh, I sometimes toy with people that call me on the phone uh, for marketing purposes for fun. And maybe that's evil. But, I, you know, most people just hang up on them, you know, and they cuss them out. And I don't. I, I just pretend that I'm dumb and don't know what they're talking about, but I'm very enthusiastic about their offer. So the other day, the guy called me from the car dealership, and I knew it wasn't the actual car dealership. It was the marketing wing to see if I wanted a new car because I just got an oil change there. He said, oh, you know, I saw you were at Nissan the other day. You know, uh, how was it? I said, oh, it was wonderful. I got an oil change. I rotated my tires. The car is looking great. You know, it's five years old. I'm really happy. I said, I, did I? And I knew I didn't talk to him. I go, did I talk to you there? <laughs> he goes, oh, no, no, no. i I just calling from Nissan. I said, oh, do you know? Chris or whatever his the, one of the guys who helped me he goes no no I don't so he's calling from corporate so right. I knew this and I pretended to be dumb and look the other way and I, and he goes I go you know what I just wanted to let you guys know you guys are doing a great job with the oil and the, and the tires that's really helpful and, he, and he's like yeah yeah okay I threw him off his script right. because I wasn't telling him to go to hell yeah. and he goes he goes you know what but you know I was actually calling to see if you wanted to get into something new I said well why would I I said, you guys are such a great service center. I said, you've kept my car looking brand new, and I, I don't think I need a new car right now. Do you think I need one? I just threw him, and he goes, well, I don't know. I go, well, I don't, I don't think so. I think, you know, you and Chris and everybody there at Nissan doing a great job. Yeah. He goes, well, have a good day. <laughs> I and love that. I, and so I love, I, that, yeah. I love, you know, it's just fun, and, and I figured, you know, I, I did telemarketing for a week when I was in college because i needed money and i and i realized you know those are the calls i'll always remember is the people that like to mess with us but not meanly yeah you know i was positive i complimented him but it threw it off because they're that the script is uh what you do in sales is you you pretend as if the sale is happening whether Mm -hmm. the person wants it or not you say Mm -hmm. okay well let's continue with the yep sounds like this is good for you it's basically brainwashing hypnosis so that's the extreme end but in the in the non-extreme end you know, in everyday life, I, I, I wrote a song once where I said, we lie every day. We're all the same on the inside, but on the outside, we lie to each other every day. Mm-hmm. Because we aren't ready. Or we're, not, we're not in the right space 
to 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 hit emotions and real shit and real existential problems or death or whatever right and so americans flee from death we don't want to go to funerals you know the irish they have their the three-day wake look at the dead body Mm -hmm. uh the jewish people uh have a seven-day thing after somebody dies where you have to sit in the home and talk about it and uh, other cultures have different things americans i mean i mean by americans i mean like whoever is here now the mainstream whatever culture um they uh we we want to get rid of this we want to get it done as soon as possible and we're more or if it's a funeral we just do what other people do on tv we just get flowers and go have a speech but the honesty i think that you bring in to your just their life you know i don't know if you call it your work or whatever but when you're working with people talking to people is that you don't you're not bullshitting if you're bullshitting for fun they know it well, you know, but if I, you're if you're not bullshitting yeah. though, that scares people. Yeah. Well, I was never a very good liar. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> or at least I didn't think so. You know. Right. So I I um, you know, I, I've gotten those kind of calls too, and well, you know, hey David, are you in, are you interested in this? And I said, well, did I, I did I call you? Right. No. Well, then I'm not interested. You know. Right. <laughs> Leave me the fuck alone. Um, but I, what I'm what I'm practicing a lot now is I think I've always been fairly honest, you know, so when I go to customers to look at their swimming pool deck, uh, I give a full range of op- options. And their first option is to do nothing. Just mm-hmm. leave it alone. The second option is to let's do some patchwork and some, you know, and then when that goes up, if you want a complete Rolls Royce type of restoration, I've developed this simulated flagstone made out of cool deck. It looks like real stone. It's not hot. It's beautiful. We, you know, so anyways, I, I tell them that. And now that I'm downsized significantly, um, I tell them, um, if I go out there and look at it, and if I feel it's more cost effective for you to do the entire deck, I'm not selling you anything because that's not what I do. And they like that, you know, they like that. And uh, I try to make all my phone calls and all my as many as I can, uh, relationships that I make with uh, salespeople or the um, uh, people, the waiters and waitresses, or or just people. I, I'm 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 very open and 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 kind, and I open up with a, being a smart ass, and that that usually works its way into to you know people ask me how I'm doing. And my response now, and it drives Susan crazy, my partner Susan crazy, because she hears it all the time, you know. Right. But this is fresh blood, you know. So I say, you know, well, considering all the other possibilities, I'm really doing quite well. And that's actually accurate. You know, I had no idea. I haven't had a plan. I was in business for 35 years. I don't know shit about running a business. I just knew my craft, and I like talking to people. And when I had to get other people do my craft that's when it became very very uh uncomfortable you know it, it became a job mm. you know so now i'm in a situation where um unless the world comes to an end if it does it's going to come to an end for everybody uh sure i'm, I'm in a really i never planned retirement um i've worked on i've lived in this house for 47 years so about 40 some odd years ago, I said, maybe it's time for the house to work for me. And because of the sequence of age and availability, I, I got, uh, I don't have a house payment nice. and I can stay here the rest of my life if I want to. So I can live off my social security and whatever else I can pick up on the side, 
you know. Um, I'm in the and the I'm one of the things that I'm doing as an implement is um, I just started back into what I call artwork and I make rattles. And uh, there's a gallery up in Sedona with uh, that's part of his artwork right there on the wall. Um, oh yeah, has my rattles for sale at his gallery. I went up there and sold them ten of them, you know, last week. Um, little a little extra you know and yeah. if i can start doing stuff with some friends of mine that are developing uh, healing centers and stuff then i'll be involved in that if we can market the book that would be great market the rattles um i love to talk obviously and i like what i talk about and most people do even though it makes them feel uncomfortable you know well i think there's a need for being uncomfortable because uh, another thing I'll just say in a large macro is I do think our society markets comfortability as the ideal. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, you know, fast food, you don't have to wait. But what do you get? Mm -hmm. You get a lesser product, uh, smoothed out uh, processed product or, um, you know, comfortable this comfortable that mm -hmm. this medication takes away these symptoms now medications are necessary right but if we take a medication for everything then maybe we aren't dealing with what's underneath what's driving it that, that's right? why i like the concept of cause and effect yes you know if you start to understand the cause and you start to recognize you don't like the effect you have the power to change that so uh I'm I'm less likely to give my power away to people, places, and things that I didn't before because that was my survival technique, and I was good. I didn't realize how good I was at it, but I'm still here. You know, I survived being Hispanic in an all-white community where we moved in just right down the street from here, and they had a petition to make us move out. You know, when I went with my friend to go to the movies, I thought it was cool because we were sitting in the balcony at the Fox Theater downtown. Well, that's where I was supposed to be. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't know that, you right. know. I, I, thought, uh, I thought there was something wrong with me when I, when I met now that I realized there's systemic racism. Yes. I thought there was something wrong with me. Right. You know. Well, that's uh, the trauma of the child. Maybe the adults knew that, but how are you, what, how are you supposed to teach a child that? Well, I, and there's another aspect of that. I don't think the adults even knew. Oh, really? I don't think my parents knew shit. Yeah. You know, they were products of the depression. They were minorities. They once the once the mining was was to a certain point. Okay, leave. You know, mm. your 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 situation of using uh, marijuana as a, a relaxer and a healing compound. Well, let's make it illegal. Get out of here. Opium. Get the Chinese out of here. You know, heroin, let's put it into the inner cities and destroy people there, you know? Right. So it's 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 interesting, all these different... Now they're starting to take research and find out that psychedelics can help. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, they're, uh, I mean, it's the research is already in. I think it's just a matter of will to get it passed through mm -hmm. different state and federal government is... And the, and the bias that they put on things, because I, I know back in the day when I used to smoke pot, when I was a young kid... Uh, I, I would get paranoid and 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 I realized it wasn't the pot that made me par paranoid paranoid was inside me and the pot brought it to the surface I didn't know that you know yeah. and um, so you know the opportunity to use medical marijuana now for my physical pain and to help me sleep has been a real blessing it's not a miracle 
oh, all yeah. the time, and it's not it's not immediate like you're you're talking about. Everything is immediate here. Fast food, take this medicine for your headache. You know, mm-hmm. um, all that stuff that's immediate. It was an incremental process to get me to walk up the ramp at St. Luke's Hospital to go into treatment when I was 33 years old. Well, it's been an incremental process to take it from that point to be here 36 years later. The difficulty is letting go of the emotions and letting go of the self-identity and losing all those self, those all those abilities to learn how to survive, something I'm not living in anymore. I don't live with my family anymore. I don't live with my mom and dad. I'm not, I, I have always, I've never starved. I've never been hungry, but my parents were depression era people. Mm-hmm. So I learned poverty mentality from them. And, and that certain personality type, if somebody would ask me years ago, well, how are you doing? Oh, you know, work and money and the family and the kids and all, everything was okay. But that's the way I thought I was supposed to respond, mm. you know? And now I don't have to respond like that anymore. You know, considering all the other possibilities, I'm doing great. Then I had some smart-ass accountant tell me, well, stop considering other possibilities. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that that was sly. But, uh, you know, I think considering, you know, when you say considering all the other possibilities, I think that for me, I would call that, uh, it's for me, I'm not saying this is what it is, but I call it a zoom out. Mm -hmm. So if I'm... If I'm having my little pity party because my shoelace snapped and my car tire is going low slowly and I, you know, had to pay too much for a, a coffee or something, yeah. right? I'm having this first world bullshit day and and then all of a sudden I almost get hit by a car at an intersection, mm. but I don't. I said, you know, I'm fine. All of a sudden, I thought, what the hell was I... Why am I in a shit mood projecting this into the neighborhood? Yeah. Why am I projecting this into the world when when really I could go buy a new shoelace? I've got a stable job. And I, I joke about this. I say, I say, you know, I, I, us therapists, you know, we're, we're, we're just weird asses. But we, we keep saying, you know, God, what if they... I say this in every podcast almost... What if we made mental health a subject in every year of school? How, what is your mental health? What is your brain? What is your nervous system? What are emotions? How do you get along with uh, friends? How do you date? How do you get along with your parents? What if your parents are abusive? What do you do with emotional abuse? What if you do with sexual abuse? What if you, and we taught that in every school. Not just for some weak thing or, or some motivational speaker coming in. What the hell would happen to this country? Well, we go out of business. We'd go out of this country, go out of business. We'd go out of business of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wouldn't be, you know, the world police anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, our business is war and has been war. Yeah. And, and, and now it's uh, our new business is capitalizing on people's shitty health in America because we feed them shit. So, so, and other things as yeah. well. Yeah. But uh, essentially, um, what I was saying was uh, I, I couldn't fully, fully get there. But it, it's just, I, I joke that I'm like, well, every time I read the news, which I try not to, well, uh, we're going to be in business for a long time. I think my, <laughs> I think our therapy business is going to continue yeah. doing okay yeah. because culturally we don't have an agreed set upon, uh, in, at least in the, in the mainstream culture, we don't have an agreed set upon way of healing. 
We don't have an agreed set upon way of initiation. We don't have an agreed way of coping. We have lots of suggestions for coping. Mm-hmm. You know, look at look at the Super Bowl commercials. You know, right. you'll see. Right. Yeah. Um, and so collectively, we—it's an individualistic society. We're not a collectivist. I mean, there's little pockets of collectivism, which, for better or for worse, so people, individuals, really have to fight to not only have autonomy in some way, mm-hmm. but to be healthy, right. because they're born into a system, mm-hmm. like you said, systemic racism. It's everywhere. I mean, I, you, 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 you noticed it, but you know. I, it take for me it took my friends pointing it out when i was in high school they said well look you know if i go into a store they follow me if you go into the store they don't follow you i said i never thought of that right and i, I never thought of that and to, right. to this until you told me that you know right. it takes listening and hearing to understand that so individuals in this society have to either band together in small groups to mm-hmm. try to find healing and help and health or they have to really really fight um, and then also, and then the worst part is, you know, if you got a whole family, and one person has figured this out, and the rest of them haven't, that's difficult. Absolutely. So, so I mean, yeah. I, I, when I got out of treatment, they said, don't, don't deal with your origin issues. You know, that they didn't say it that way. That's what I heard. You know, concentrate on not using, concentrate on not drinking, go to your meetings, and you know that kind of stuff. And I didn't do that. I, like I said, I went and bought all these books about adult children and stuff, and I went back. And I wanted to be, I used to say this at the treatment center, I was the guy that was going to ride in on the white horse with the, with the silver shield and helmet and stuff, and I was going to go in there and save the family. You know, well, they, they killed and ate the horse, and they stripped the armor off of me and sold it for scrap and just beat the shit out of me, you know. But I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. I, was, I, didn't, I didn't know then what I know now is I was recognizing the cause of this, and I couldn't blame them because I was a student of theirs. I was a student of my mom and dad's incredible mental illness. But they were once students being taught by their teachers mm-hmm. who were once students being taught by, taught by their teachers. So this the intergenerational stuff. And then, you know, Eckhart Tolle talks about the pain body. You know, the whole culture is like this. And oh, yeah. people don't want to have uncomfortable conversations because they don't want to be uncomfortable. I'm, I'm almost 70. I'm 68 years old. I never knew anything about Tulsa, Oklahoma being burnt down, these people. I didn't know that. I didn't know that until three or four years ago. Yeah, me either. You know, I didn't know that uh, Central Park in New York, the big chunk of that was a black community that was getting out of the dirty inner inner city stuff and moving into this area and developing uh stores and they were they were successful but they all happened to be black well uh they they condemned the land and they took it and they built central park now i just found out about that you know i didn't know growing up in in the high school that i went to in an all white pretty much ritzy neighborhood um that i was i was being uh the effects of racism were there I, I didn't. I didn't get that. The only people that I didn't feel it from is the guys that I was hanging out with, because we were all the same. I, I'm a product of the early, late '60s and early '70s, and the hippie movement. Just, I just thought that was great. 
I wasn't a hippie because I was stuck at home and I was too afraid to leave and you know I didn't do I didn't go full bore. It actually took me until I was 50 years old to become a real hippie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the whole idea behind who cares what race you are, you know, uh, you know, we're we're a fellowship, peace, love, all that we're stuff. All one, right. That just that just, I was just drawn to that. The only problem is we're all fucked up. <laughs> That's so funny you say that. Yeah, because you try to, you know, it. love is the antidote to fear. Yes. And and fear is what's been dominating our culture for years now, I think, is fear of other, fear of something different, fear of change. But fearing change is, 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 odd, is madness because all life is change. Mm-hmm. But uh, but you're right. It's so funny. You know, we get in these groups and we try to create something new, and then the whole family dynamic pattern just comes out. I used to joke about that uh, <laughs> when I was in college. I I also was drawn to the hippie movement, and uh, I, I I it was different than you know. It's it was the early 2000s, so it wasn't really the hippie movement as much as like uh, jam bands and uh, eat organic and uh, have drum circles and poetry nights and all that shit. <laughs> You know, it was pretty, pretty, pretty uh, tame. Um, but we... It's all about intention, though. True. But <laughs> after World War II, they, uh, at, at the university I was at, they had, they had bought all these old houses, This the university had and, they had, and they had lent them out to this place called the Cooperative Housing. And uh, the Cooperative Housing was meant for soldiers coming back with shell shock to mm. be able to live with other students and not feel crazy, because the dorms were... I don't know if this is the whole story, but I think the dorms were a little bit more exclusive uh, at the time. So anyway, these this housing system still exists in a lot of universities on the East Coast and the Midwest. And it's these houses that are cooperatively owned, and you buy a share, and you put, put in your $500, and then you, you get cheap rent because you all share a house, you share chores. So mm-hmm. I thought, you know, what a great idea. So I moved in. <laughs> I convinced a bunch of my friends, 12 of us, to move in to this house with 28 people. 16 women and uh, 12 guys, well, I don't know, something like that. And we thought, we're, we are starting something new. We are off campus. We're going to, you know, we're going to have wine and cheese nights, which we did. We're going to have bands. We're going to, this one a friend of ours was an artist. He built a pizza oven out back <laughs> out of brick. He, you know, we're going to do this. We're doing this. And we did all that. It was fun. But what we didn't do correctly was learn how to have relationships there was constant problems with the chores you know there was one person of course who was like the do-gooder and so it was his dishes night and he ended up doing his dishes but the night the four other nights before that's dishes you know what i mean because somebody would slack off on that job and then there'd be the cooking you know there was always a fight over this and that and then of course you know you put that many hormonal young children in the same house and then there's love triangles and love quad triangles and <laughs> there's a few marriages out of it a couple divorces you know and, and what we learned what i learned from living there was we all had such good intentions to love yeah. each other yeah. and we did yeah in the best way we could you know by having these parties and you know we're all kind of uh what do you want to call that we weren't we weren't the norm core as they call it kids we were all out there there was a bunch of philosophy majors and music majors and a bunch of useless shit that we paid money for and and uh and you know but we 
we had, you know, a lot of us are still friends to this day. It's funny, actually, about 20 of us are, but there was a good, there were, we had so much dysfunction yeah. because we were all living under our family's rules. Yeah. Well, in my family, when the when you get the mail, you tell everybody, you don't just throw it on the table, that, you know, yeah. but think of it, 28 people in one house, David, <laughs> 28 people. I mean, it was a shit show. So, and yet, you know, we finally would get our shit together to have a party on Friday and everybody said, you threw the best party we've ever had. You had a poet and a drum circle. And singing, you know, the rest of the week we're living in squalor. You know, nobody will clean. You know, it was a, it was a big fun. Well, there's two different things there about one of them being communal. Um, there's a friend of mine. Her name is Kathy Kelling, and she put a, together um, a, a supper club, and it was a way for her to gain like-minded people and and cook. She loved to cook, and so it was. This was really cool. Um, where was I going with that? Recreating the family dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, so there was a guy there, and uh, we got to talking about uh, addiction and you know recovery and stuff. Well, he came from a place where what, how they dealt with addicts in the past was communal living. So they they'd go to the quote unquote commune, and they had to you know stay off drugs and be part of this new system participate in the gardening participate you know communal life yeah. you know the second that they diagnosed or they qualified addiction as a disease every fucking place in the place had now pay uh um recovery centers oh, for God. pay uh, uh-huh. so they created a whole market out of what we were doing naturally and now that they made a business out of it Oh, it's a business. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, yeah, I, I were, it, and it, it's incredible because it's so basic. Um, you know, when people go to the mental hospital, one of the first things they do is they put you in group therapy, mm-hmm. and they talk about simple things in the first group, right? They get more advanced, and there's more advanced. But why do they put people in groups, and why do they put them on a routine? Why do they put them on breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and all these things? Because this person oftentimes in, from the mental hospital was either in the most dysfunctional household ever where it was chaos mm-hmm. or the dysfunctional household of rigidity, which mm-hmm. is scary, or they were isolated and, and they literally, their mental health went away from them. They caught and they, they put them in this routine and the routine is literally like going back to tribal life. I mean, it's in a hospital, right. but it's like, you know, at this time of night, we all eat. At this time of night, we all sleep. At this time of day, we take our medicine. At this time of day, we all share our feelings. And that is so simple. Mm-hmm. But you know how much they charge for that, David? No, I... 20,000, 20,000, 30, yeah, you know, that was, that a was, month. I think, I don't even remember what it was. I think it was 20,000 when I went. That was 35 years ago. Well, it's probably more now. Oh, right. Shit, and, yeah. and, yeah. and it's And it's crazy because, you know, in the mental health field, we're limited in some ways because of our licenses. You know, we see people once or twice a week. We can do group therapy, too, but very difficult to get insurance to pay for it. I could go into that. Right. But I say, my God, if I could just get this person in a treatment center, right? Because if I could get them in a treatment center, all of a sudden they've got this built-in community. They got this structure. Mm -hmm. And then when they come out, they can start trying to replicate that positive system. Right. The problem is... The finances. So it's crazy that you say that because it's just, it's such a simple thing. Exactly. Yeah. But yet, our culture, we're so, I mean, the pandemic brought out all sorts of things. We could go on for hours about that. We probably shouldn't. But um, the isolation 
is just and the ability to have boundaries but yet like my friend mike says you know um every family at some point becomes a family of porcupines and one of them their their spikes come out and they spike the other ones and then they all kind of move away from each other and then they spike each other more and they spike each other more Mm -hmm. but uh, the goal is to find the right distance where you can be in a little circle with the other porcupines, mm-hmm. and when your quills come out, you don't stab the person next to you. Right. You deal with your own quills. Right. You wait till your quills retract. Right. That's boundaries. Right. That's real hard to do because it takes so much work because we're all programmed in some way or another yeah. to attack when we feel attacked. Well, when you made mention about um, intention, you know, I with. Uh, Right around the time I got divorced over a 30-year marriage, uh, my now my partner Susan and I got together. <clears throat> and I was didn't realize the amount of energy I was putting in to try to change her, you know, introducing her to recovery and hoping that, you know, get, get past the death of her spouse and all that kind of shit. And at some point, I walked into the room and said, I need to apologize to you. And she goes, for what? I said, I realize I've been trying to change you. And if you changed the way I thought I wanted you to be, then I would be okay. That's a drug to me. Mm. That's addiction. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm going to do everything I can to stop doing that. Beautiful intention. Well, I'm still working on it 15 years later. My my technique, my, 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 what is it, the... My technique sucked. Right. (laughs) My intention was beautiful, you know. And the reality is, that's exactly what I was doing with my daughter. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't. I didn't want her to have special needs. Mm -hmm. I didn't want her to be suffering with the discomfort and pain. She was an incredible woman. I didn't. In her life review, I didn't have to glorify her because she did that. Right. She wrote cards to people and communicated with them and stuff. But we fucking fought all the time and yet on the other side of that i socialized her and i i I brought her into uh, an environment that she would have not probably not if she had stayed you know with the with with the other people um i was really fortunate (laughs) sorry i was really fortunate with the fact that i got uh enough resolution with her that when she did pass i gained the benefits of her passing and the benefits of my learning how to listen and practicing that more and more. And I'm practicing that now with, with my partner, you know. We both came from very, very dysfunctional. We have a lot of enmeshment with family and relatives and all that kind of stuff. And um, I, I compare myself to other people that are getting into relationships now. And I'm, sometimes I've been jealous but then I realized from where we came from to where we are now, it's a freaking miracle. You know, I feel very, very blessed to be here with her. And we both drive each other fucking nuts, you know, <laughs> or close to nuts. Right, anyways, right, right. You know? But, um, you know, intent's great. Uh, technique is another aspect, you know. And um, I'm learning better technique. And one of those is to learn how to shut the fuck up. That is a that is a very difficult technique. Um, <laughs> I would say that that is Zen Buddhism master level. Stuff. Yeah. And uh, 
considering what you were talking about, shutting the fuck up, the, the reverse to that is it, the other most Zen master technique is, is really hearing people. Mm-hmm. I was listening to somebody the other day tell me about they were frustrated with their physicians and they were telling me about how they were telling them all these things. I said, well, I'm so glad you told them that and that they listened. Mm-hmm. They said, well, that doesn't matter. I said, what do you mean? They said, oh, they listened to me all right. They wrote their notes or whatever they did, but they dismissed me. I said, what do you mean they dismissed me? They, they didn't take me seriously. I said, they said, they didn't hear me. They didn't hear me. Nobody's been hearing me. Mm. I said, oh my God. I didn't think, I didn't consider right. that. Because right. I was just applauding you for having told them. They said, it doesn't matter if they listen and they write in their charts. It matters if they hear you and they make a change. Right. So then I thought about that and I said to myself, Wow, how many times have somebody told me something that's impactful to them? And because it didn't resonate with me, I just listened to them. I said, oh, that's interesting. Oh, mm-hmm. cool. Oh, yeah. yeah, tell me more about that. Blah, right. blah, blah. Right. And then I go about my way, and it doesn't impact me. It stays at my skin surface. If I really hear them, I have to open up my heart mm-hmm. to what they're saying to me. Mm-hmm. And that, who's ready for that? You know, well, you're never ready for that. Yeah. You, have to, you have to do that. You have to, you have to put that out there. Well, you heard the, the Deb X talk. Yeah. So you know this. The people listening just don't. Yeah. Well, they'll actually, I can put that link in the show notes. Okay. Cool. For them to click on your DevX talk. Cool. So the la- I, a mo- it was an hour drive to the hospital where my where my daughter was, and something happened on that trip. I won't get into a lot of detail now because of, of, of and it's in the it's in the talk. And because she, she was telling us she was going to die soon. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we were countering that. And I thought a lot of what she was going through was just behavioral stuff. I thought she was just being a little bitch, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that later, these are symptomatic aspects of the Parkinson's that she had. Mm-hmm. She's only, she'd been diagnosed with Parkinson's when she was 35, you know? And it just was taking its toll. And, you know, we didn't know, even though she was on medication and stuff. And the medication, God, when I saw her paperwork, after she passed away and I got all her medical records and I saw all the fucking crap she was on, it just, it broke my heart. But I, I, something happened on the drive over there and I listened and my response is, I hear you and I love you. She'd say something else. I hear you and I love you. And that started the process of me practicing, not only listening, but hearing others especially myself i have 10,000 responses i can give to people quick they're they're accurate they're just shut up man just not now you know not now or maybe not ever you know um it's been highly beneficial and very painful to practice <laughs> You know, very painful to practice. Um, one of the aspects of me, which I think I represent a certain percentage of people, I don't know how many, incredibly sensitive. I've been incredibly sensitive my whole life. So in the Hispanic community or the Western medicine, Western history, that means weakness. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a, I was a, a crybaby or I was too sensitive or I was uh, chion in Spanish a crybaby a crier mm-hmm. you know um, not knowing that that would eventually become my biggest asset because I didn't stop feeling and I stopped taking things that caused me to stop feeling or to alter those feelings in a different direction so it's been an incredible journey 
and I'm almost 70 years old and I'm starting a new career. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm selling rattles. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, I forgot to comment on the rattles. Uh, one of the things that I've been noticing a trend of, for better or for worse, is that Westerners raised in this Western society, let's just say since the 80s, my generation, they are so sick of words. Mm-hmm. We're, and what I mean by that is there's just words everywhere, words and words and words. And what, they're, what, what you're talking about, just listening mm-hmm. and the acknowledgement of, of hearing somebody is more powerful than you having a response sometimes. Absolutely. I believe that, too. And, and then part two. I didn't two, know I believed that. Well, yeah. It's just, well, here's the crazy thing about belief. A lot of belief is we don't really know until we experience it. Well, I'm really glad you said that because this is one thing that I, I really like and respect myself of. That's I'm, to turn around. Who said that? <laughs> <laughs> I know what I believe in, but I'm open to change what I believe in. Because I believed I couldn't. On a, on a subconscious level or unconscious level, depending upon how much I drank, I needed drink. I believed that, and my behavior supported that belief. Well, eventually I realized I don't. And it was very, very difficult to change that practice, um, but it was beneficial because I changed my belief, and now I know I don't need to drink to be able to speak to you or talk to a crowd or go sell a job or quote unquote have fun, or I don't miss hanging around a bunch of people that are a bunch of fucking idiots, and I was one of them because I was drinking with them. You know, I'd go on these camping, hunting trips and stuff um, when I got clean and sober, and I think, what the fuck am I doing with these people, man? You know, I, I saw this scene of clouds and the moon and lightning and sunset and oh god it was just incredible <laughs> the guys walked up and goes hey man what you doing i said look at this man look at how beautiful this is yeah cool as he opens <laughs> opens another beer you know and uh time it uh, one year same same hunting area same group of guys okay right now that stupid ass story is going to be told one more time the same goddamn story that they told the year before they're telling right now. And I, I watched the guy I bought my house from, his parents, and then he moved in next door to me, literally drink till the sun came up, all by himself by the campfire, just smoking. And six months later, he was dead. Oh, man. You know? And when, when he had his first heart attack before that, I told him, I said, look, at they're talking about the smoking, but they're not saying nothing about the drinking. And I said, I'll be there for you. And I, at first I asked him what it was like to experience the heart attack. And uh, he could hardly even describe it. Mm-hmm. He, he couldn't even think it hurt so bad. Couldn't breathe, couldn't, you know. So I said, if you want to stop, if you want help with that, I'll, I'm your brother, man. I'll be there for you. He says, uh, well, how am I going to have fun? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, man, you got tubes stuck every fucking orifice in your body. You just described to me a situation you couldn't even describe. You don't look like you're having too much fun. Well, six months later, he was dead. Yeah. He literally drank himself to death, and they blamed it on a heart attack mm-hmm. or because he was a fireman or whatever. I mean, you know, firemen and police drink a lot. Well, this is his house. I watched him pass out on the floor over here right. when, he was, when we were in third grade. So he wasn't a fireman then, you know? 
yeah. stuff. So I, I think muchismo kills more men than all drugs and alcohol put together. <laughs> oh, I would agree with that. And the machismo is in the in Latinx culture, but it's the same thing in in the in the white Euro culture. I don't know what they call it, but they you, you've got to project this stoic, hardcore, tough guy image, right? To yeah. to get acceptance into certain places, but with other men, and or certain groups of uh, of women who have fathers like that Mm -hmm. and uh you know the crazy part of it is is that um some of the some of the folks that do it are really sensitive underneath yes and they're easier to deal with but some of them have so many damn layers Mm -hmm. that they they don't have an initiation to who they are until they have a damn heart attack or they're on the deathbed and mm-hmm. that's 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 what our culture is facing right now. Exactly. I mean, right, oh yeah. Real, I yeah. just want to make an aside here. Mm-hmm. Look up the statistics right now, and I think I, I think it's getting worse of men in their early sixties, fifties, mm-hmm. dying of heart attacks from eating shitty food and drinking too much and 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 working too much, really, right? Um, because they they uh, men's mental health is in a crisis. I mean, women's has always been in a crisis, but I feel like women are getting a a better shot now mm-hmm. with a lot of uh, people waking up to women's rights and, and um, treating women like humans instead of objects. But I feel like men are still grappling with this this long shadow cast from decades earlier of this mythologi- mythological man. Yeah. And the mythological man is a myth. Mm-hmm. The man is very um, sensitive. Uh, men are sensitive, in fact, in studies, and this is in a book I read by John Gottman, Men were actually found to be more sensitive uh, than girls in terms of testing on on, a te- on on psychometric testing until about thirteen, when boys kind of got into middle school and started having these like tough guy contests, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, women's sensitivity continued mm-hmm. to be sensitive to things. It, it, statistically speaking, and men's dropped significantly. Right. It's like they shut themselves off from themselves. Right, exactly. They're, they're, and it's that small self, myself, and that big S self, spirit. Mm. So what is addiction? Giving oneself up to a powerful habit. Now, in the first, in the first dictionary I saw, it said uh, in a passive voice. So my passive voice, if my wife would leave me alone, I wouldn't have an issue. Or how am I going to watch uh, Monday Night Football or Tuesday Night Boxing or Wednesday Night basketball or how am I going to go to the party you know so I don't live that far from where I grew up I was 33 years when I I went into treatment so I I thought I was getting primed for the party what I realized I had to be under the influence to be around these people right (laughs) you know so I'm sober and I'm clean and I'm you know x amount of time and I get in the car and by the time I get to the street I'm 30 years old by the time I get to the other corner, I'm 25 years old. By the time I get down the street, I don't, I don't even live but two miles from here, where our family lived. By the time I walked in the door, I was three years old, and they fucking owned my ass. Hmm. Yeah. So it was kind of the opposite of the monkey coming to the man. Right. I was the grown-up man becoming the child, 
walking into the same environment when my when my dad died my brother says well why don't you sell your house and move in here i said are you fucking kidding me I, in order to smudge this place i'd have to burn the son of a bitch down <laughs> you know? right. there's ghosts all over this motherfucking place you know i don't want to live here yeah you know so yeah it's 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 intriguing i, I like where i am at i like what i talk about i like i like my experience of being with me now yeah that's a new experience man it's 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 weird <laughs> well and i would say this how many men can't own their identity except in quiet moments with their therapist if they have a therapist mm -hmm. or you know maybe maybe they go on a fishing trip or a a moment of silence and they finally see their identity but half the time i find that men have to build their identity around how many guns they own? How, mm -hmm. uh, how big is their truck? Yeah. How much money they have? What kind of job they have? Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of uh, you know per partner they have? You know who who their partner is, where they live, all this superficial shit. Mm -hmm. And 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 then you know another thing. Uh, and, and then how much is enough? You know, and especially in our culture uh, right now, we have more wealth than any nation maybe i mean in terms of i don't know but like just the average person has more access to to wealth and things than ever mm -hmm. than other cultures in past you know hundreds and thousands of years ago where it was usually only concentrated in, in the in the king's house or whatever yeah. and, but yet we feel so poor yeah. that we must continue to get more and more and more at the expense of our bodies at the expense of our relationships, at the expense of our soul, mm -hmm. at the expense of if you have children, uh, you know, your relationships there, at the expense of the fact that, you know, time is the one thing you can't get more of. Exactly. You know, you that's that's determined by something bigger than us. And and so, you know, that that's that's the hard part. Uh, you know, you hear people in our culture uh, you know, they, they've had a, a big reevaluation since mm -hmm. the COVID uh, pandemic of people changing jobs, quitting jobs. Um, what should I be doing with my life? Maybe I should start a farm. I, I literally talked to somebody yesterday. They started. They uh, they sold their house in the city. Mm -hmm. They bought a farmhouse forty five minutes uh, outside of the city where the land was cheaper. Mm -hmm. And they're buying some fruit trees. Mm -hmm. They're starting a farm and they're starting a CSA because they go. I can make thirty thousand a year with this with these fruits in a few years and that's all i need to pay the whole farm and then some yeah and there you have it this is the end of part one of my discussion with david fryho on the intentional clinician podcast with paul kraus and as david said so many memorable things in this podcast two of which i'd like to give you a quote of right now if I would have killed myself back then, I would have been murdering the wrong identity. Such a poignant quote by David Fryho. And he also said, you're not the person you were when you were using, and you're not the person you have the potential to become. And those are just such excellent words. If you want to know more about David, uh, as we said, he's a native Arizonan, and he's a healer, an author, a public speaker, and he's run a healing circle. And he uh, wrote a book, and you can see the book about emotional detox in the notes. And I'm going to have all the links to him in the show notes of this episode. If you believe you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. If you can't afford it, try a support group or group therapy. 
You can make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Grand Rapids Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. That's Health for Life Counseling Grand Rapids. Also, if you are in the state of Michigan, you can see those clinicians over telehealth. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest. And while these are based upon literature they have read and their experience in their lives and in the field, these opinions should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 right now or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color feeling down, stressed out, or overwhelmed? Text the word STEVE, that's S-T-E-V-E, to 741741. The number is 741741, and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond via text. Did you know that you can support your local bookstore by shopping online at bookshop.org? That's bookshop.org. You can order books from the comfort of your own home while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you, such as independent bookstores, which is really a great source of culture and community. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your professional organization, I urge you to get involved. For instance, the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association in Michigan and the Arizona Counselors Association in Arizona and many more, as this helps increase the availability of quality mental health services around the state, increasing education, promoting best practices, and working to keep licensed professional counselors and other professionals accessible by the public. If you are a therapist and have not been trained in EMDR therapy, check out EMDR Training Solutions and register for an upcoming training today. You can use the code INTENTIONAL at checkout and get $100 off your first training. Take it from me, these are excellent trainers, some of the best in the business, and I've known them for a long time. Thank you so much for listening to The Intentional Clinician. I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week. Yeah.